Believe it or not, we're hitting the home stretch of the melee for mayor. Seven Democratic candidates enter, only one will move on to the April general election. City Treasurer Tashara Jones is hoping to be the Democratic standard bearer. She joins us next on Politically Speaking to lay out her vision for St. Louis. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens, Navy (laughs) SEALs running for governor. And I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Joe Manis. And... Rachel Lipman. And joining us as our special guest, we have... Tashara Jones, treasurer of the city of St. Louis. I want to thank you very much for coming today because you are rounding out our Melee for Mayor series. You are the the Democratic side, at least. On the Democratic side, at least. We are going to have a couple of Republican candidates on, so... Our goal here was to give St. Louis voters as much information about candidates as possible for this historic and vitally important election. And you're 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 the last person. So save I, the best for last. I, yeah, of the Democrats. <laughs> of, right. of the Democrats. So you you were on the show in 2013 and you did talk about yourself then. But since a lot of people may not have heard that show, we want the St. Louis voters to know a little bit more about you personally, professionally and politically. So. Who is Tashara Jones, is my first question. Tashara Jones is a single mom of the most adorable nine-year-old named Aiden, who you can find on Twitter at hashtag StuffAidenSays. I am also um, have a bachelor's in finance from Hampton University, master's in health administration from St. Louis University School of Public Health, uh, and recently completed the uh, executive Uh, the program for state and local executives at Harvard University's JFK School of Government. And what what prompted you to get involved in politics and give um, the listeners a sense of what you've done before you became treasurer? Great. Uh, So in uh, 2002, uh, Lisa Suggs asked me to um, uh, consider finishing out her unexpired term as committee woman uh, in the 8th Ward. And um, I jumped at the chance and had a great time uh, doing that, ran for re-election in 2004 and won. Uh, in 2004, Robin Wright Jones asked me to run for her seat as she was terming out um, in 2008, ran, in, ran uh, and that was the 63rd district at the time, uh, which encompassed um, downtown Soulard, Lafayette Square, all the way west to the Botanical Gardens, but take out Compton Heights. And uh, then I uh, ran for um, uh Uh, served two terms in the Missouri House, um, became the first African-American and female minority minority floor leader in Missouri history, uh, then ran for treasurer in 2012, um, and became the first African-American female treasurer in St. Louis history. That race was pretty interesting because it was a four-person race. I think all three had a lot of money. I think you had the least amount of money out of the four. Is that correct? Yes, I did. Um, but you obviously made a dollar count because you won by a pretty decisive margin. I don't Ten know the points. Mo- yeah. Yeah, yeah, which it, in a four-person race is. Yeah, it, it, that was a pretty crazy primary because there was also the uh, Clay Carnahan 
uh, battle for the congressional for the seat. seat yes. So there was a, the turnout was higher than usual. But you, so in many ways, you surprised many of the pundits who had predicted this or that person to win. Oh, everybody predicted won. that Brian Wabi was going to take it. Yeah, and we'll he did not. <laughs> yes. well, he came in last place. He, he did come in last place. But yeah, we don't want to. We don't want to rub salt on in the wound. What, what do you think caused you to win that race? Because as I said in the backdrop, it was a competitive race. Your opponents did have more money than you. In in the mayor's race, people have more money than you. Yes. What, what what was kind of your secret to success there? Um, we knew that in uh, races that are uh, that have multiple candidates, the only way you win is in the streets. So we put a lot, all of our money into field and uh, in, into a ground campaign and into mail and into, you know, those old tried and true campaign methods, going, knocking on doors and talking to people. Well, and, and you have some experience from that. I mean, from your family as well. Yes. You probably should mention that. Yes. yes. Your father uh, is Burvis Jones, Jones, former for comptroller, and he's still pretty active in the political scene. I know he's been helped out some candidates who have yes. been successful besides yourself. Yes, he also helped uh, Mavis Thompson, uh, Vernon Betts, um, and Kim Gartner. Yeah. Now, as treasurer, you replaced a very long-term treasurer, Larry Williams. So when you came in, are there certain things that you felt you had to do right away and just sort of how you've approached the office since you've been there? Yes, absolutely. So when a person has an office for, you know, 30 plus years, uh, there are a lot of um, uh, procedures and policies that are just kind of ingrained or just not documented. So uh, we found that we needed to uh, make our HR procedures more robust and documented. Our employees that never received uh, uh, job descriptions or performance evaluations. So we started that process. Um, our HR policy handbook was 30 pages in in, in entirety. So we uh, documented more of our HR policies and procedures because we also had a number of EEOC lawsuits outstanding at the time. Um, also, the treasurer is the uh, parking supervisor, which is probably the most unique elected office in the country, probably in the world. Believe me, I've looked. And so um, we also started to uh, started along the process of upgrading our meter infrastructure uh, to match that of other metropolitan cities where you can take a credit card or app uh, as a form of payment. Yeah, for full disclosure, I have that app on my phone. I As use it I. all the time, so, but continue. <laughs> yes. And then also we looked around the country to see what other treasurers were doing in, you know, in other areas and found that there was a movement in financial empowerment services, which is um, li literally helping people make better decisions with their money. Uh, and um, so we started the Office of Financial Empowerment in City Hall um, and uh, renovated some space uh, to a classroom and a computer lab, uh, as well as some office space for one-on-one -on -one counseling because financial decisions are uh, pretty sensitive and people appreciate privacy when talking to someone about those. Um, and since then, we've also launched the College Kids Children's Savings Account Program, which gives a college savings account uh, to every kindergartner in a public school district or charter and um, uh, we lo loaded with the first $50 from residual parking revenue. Uh, and that has been touted as one of the most innovative children's savings programs in the country. So how does this then translate into an office that um, there is a long-term incumbent there, but hasn't had the, the scrutiny or some of the scandals that maybe the treasurer's office had had before you took over? Um, I think it, it, it translates in that, you know, taking a uh, a look at, um, you know, just trying to be more innovative when you're I think when you're in an office longer than, say, 
three terms, um, things become a little bit stale. Um, and, you know, and you're not uh, paying attention to um, other parts of the country and and some of the some of the things get swept under the rug, so to speak. So I think having a fresh set of eyes um, at existing problems is, is what we've been doing in the treasurer's office. And that's hope that's what we hope to take into the mayor's office. Now, um, as obviously you're aware, there's been some controversy. I mean, that some of your opponents or critics have pointed to some of your travel. Do you want to talk about that a little bit and why you feel that was necessary for the office and just sort of how you approached it? Well, yes, because the office, again, it was mired in corruption. It did a lot of things inefficiently, and I, and I felt that it was best to uh, look at best practices and research-based policies from around the country um, to, in order to upgrade the office. And I've documented every trip. Uh, every trip was related to business, and you know, and if it wasn't, would I be that brazen to document it and ask for reimbursement? <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, are you surprised that it's become an issue, and why do you think it became an issue? Uh, it's totally political. Um, if you look at if you look at the people who are who are um, behind the story, um, i.e., the couple of aldermen who are behind the story, you know, they passed my budget every year for the last four years and never made an issue uh, about travel. And and this is and, and these are documents that I submit to the comptroller's office. I'm the only elected official that has to go through this process. Uh, aldermen have a, an, ex, an expense account that they don't have to report how they spend it. Uh, they can even uh, transfer it to salary and pocket it. I can't do that, I, and I chose not to do that. I wanted to make sure that we were transparent in everything that we do. So let's transition into what you would want to do if you are the next mayor of the city. I, I'm just going to ask a really basic question. Why did you decide to run for this office? St. Louis is at a crossroads, and the world is watching us right now. And um, and, and when I say the world is watching us, I think the world is watching us post-Ferguson. Um, even though that's a suburb of St. Louis, the world is really watching us and how we are going to react, how we're going to change, how we're going to move forward, how we're going to be progressive. And um, and I feel that I have a unique skill set that I bring to the table um, in being innovative and, and, and thinking about people first um, and, and making sure that, you know, that prosperity and justice are things that all families can achieve. And right now, St. Louis has too many gaps and we are still the fifth most segregated city in the country. Uh, we have gaps between neighborhoods, gaps between haves and have nots and gaps be between races. And we need a mayor who's going to bring us together. So, um, when you look at the field and sort of what do you see as your biggest issues? I mean, you've talked just now about why you're running, mm -hmm. but as you're going around talking to people and going door to door, what are the big is biggest issues on people's minds and how would you address that? I, I think that the biggest things on people's minds are, are making sure that government is accountable to the people. Um, and that we are spending their resources wisely, and also that we're taking care of the little things. Um, and, and that's why I think we've seen such a groundswell uh, against the, the stadium, both stadium, both recent stadium projects, the MLS stadium as well as uh, the Ram stadium. Because if we don't do the little things right, they won't trust us to do the big things. So people are worried about trash pickup. People are worried about their roads. People are worried about uh, crime and public safety. People are worried about... Um, uh, 
equitable development, sustainable development north of Del Mar and, and places south of Arsenal. Um, people are also worried about uh, their, the education system, even though the uh, public schools have recently received their, uh, their, their re-accredited. Um, how do we keep that momentum going? Uh, let's drill down into sort of that development issue a little bit. What would you see as being the the proper way for the city to approach it, the proper strategy, use of incentives? What's, what's your take on, on how the city should kind of bring and attract development? Mm-hmm. So uh, let me state this first. I think there's a... Um, a preconceived notion that I am against development incentives. I'm not. I just think they should be used more responsibly. And I think that in the last 15 years, we've gone a little too far in how we hand out development incentives. I've been quoted as saying we hand them out like Halloween candy uh, because we have uh, given away over $700 million in tips and tax abatements in the last 15 years. and, And I think that we haven't done that in a responsible manner. And when I talk about being responsible, I'm talking about community benefit agreements that include things like jobs with living wages, investment in, in other areas, um, uh, work, uh, workforce centers on site, uh, and making sure that uh, if we are going to invest our tax dollars in a large development project, then we need to make sure that we're getting something for our, uh, as a return on that investment. As you know, you know, St. Louis is not in a bubble. You know, St. Louis County has a number of municipalities that would aggressively use tax incentives to possibly take a potential city project and move it to Maryland Heist or Chesterfield. What type of balance do you have to strike to make sure you are using incentives responsibly, but you're not losing on losing out on big ticket projects to other mm-hmm. parts of the region? Well, I mean, you have to have you have to have more than, you know, a couple of conversations. I, I think it's I, I, I think that by the time um, our board of aldermen receives that uh, those development uh, projects, they're all everything's already baked in and there's there's no room for discussion there's no room for amendment there's no room for anything and i think that process should be a little more public i think people would um people that you know that live in the areas that the development project's going to go in would appreciate having some input um, on the project before it gets voted on, before it, you know, before it's already set in stone. So how do you as the mayor do that? How do you set that tone? I, I, well, I, I think it takes a strong mayor to come in and say, hey, these are the things my community needs. Um, and, you know, we're willing to work with you. We're willing to, um, you know, to look at what uh, investment in, uh, or uh uh, incentives that we have on the table. Um, um, but these are the things that my community needs in return. Continuing on the development angle and, and talking about something you talked about before, stadiums have been on top of mind in the Board of Aldermen in the last few weeks um, and, and in the past year, because we're also talking about the Rams stadium situation, which you, you oppose publicly. Kind of lay out why you don't think it's appropriate for the city to invest a lot of money in these facilities? Because I've heard both arguments, but I want to hear yours. Or is it ever appropriate? Like, is there ever a moment where you might say, yes, we could put public money into this project? I think the the moment where I say, yes, we should put public money in is when we have all of the counties of the region at the table. And we don't. We just have the city at the table. Um, and uh, we need a some sort of regional authority um, where we can all put our money in uh, for new attractions because they are used regionally, but they are only paid for by the city, uh, except for the dome, which is a third the city, a third the county, and a third the, a third the state. Well, how do you convince the the? I'm, when I say the county, I'm not just talking about the county executive. I'm also potentially talking about county voters because the county executive has been pretty adamant that any stadium funding would be contingent on a public vote. How do you get? 
as the mayor, I know your 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 domain is limited, but how do you convince county voters or, or St. Charles County voters to buy into something like that? Well, you have to go out and talk to the people. Yeah. And I don't think we've done that. I don't think we've done a good job at outreach. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we think that St. Charles is just across the Missouri River and, and, and it's just this entity out there. You know, mm-hmm. what are we doing to to work <laughs> regionally together? What are we doing to uh, to talk to to each other's constituents, and I don't think that that happens in a in a. I don't think it happens much. I mean, aside from the dome, most of the other sports-related development projects downtown have generally been foot footed by the city of St. Louis or tax incentives to the private people. In the case of Ballpark Village, are there are there lessons from those projects that you would take forward if you were mayor, as far as any new ones? Uh, the primary lesson I would take forward is um, as we're looking at uh, improvements to Scott Trade and the and the uh, convention center is that we don't have any uh, capital improvement funds set aside. Uh, we knew this this facility was aging um, and we didn't put any funds aside for capital improvements. That's one of the things that I do right now in the treasurer's office as we've built garages we when we bond those garages we put a Set, we, we set money aside for capital improvements so when the, when it comes where you know we need to do some maintenance to the garage or new lights or or uh, you know uh, concrete you know reshoring the concrete uh, we already have money there and it doesn't come out of our operating funds we didn't do that so you, you're unlike some of the other guests you're not on the board of aldermen so you didn't have a vote on whether to put the sales tax and the use tax diversion uh, measures on the ballot Regardless of whether you win or lose, you're still going to be an elected official in April, and you're still going to have a voice. What would you tell voters to do on those two initiatives, the sales tax increase primarily from Metrolink, and then the use tax measure that would steer the use tax toward the soccer stadium if the sales tax passes? I would tell voters to vote no on April 4th. I think we need to go back to the drawing board. On both of them? On both of them. Can you explain why? Um, because I feel like the the projects were rushed through, knowing that there's a new administration that's going to be sworn in in the in the end of April, and that's going to be baggage that the new mayor has to carry into his or her administration. Uh, I think, and and I think it's really short sighted to do that to rush through that project so so quickly. Uh, again, without having more public input as to you know what they want to see that sales tax used for. Now, now, one of the reasons I asked that question is I know you've been a big strong proponent of a north-south Metrolink, and I think that the current mayor has said that this sales tax will at least partially partially 60, do that. The like goal is 60 percent. So right. do you feel like um, this sales tax needs to be more directed toward that goal? And I guess the other question is, do you also need to continue engagement with the county for, for a north-south Metrolink to happen? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I think more engagement needs to happen. Um, and and I'm open to uh, you know having meetings with uh, with uh, Mr. Stinger uh, should I win, um, but also uh, I think we need to look at other uh, ways that other cities have uh, funded uh, transit expansion through public-private partnerships. That's not even on the table. Now, related to that, I'm going to kind of segue a little bit into crime because um, this is sort of related to the <coughs> a lot of the stuff that's been going on. Um, among other things, you've been talking about, um, you've been cooler to the idea of putting more police on the streets, talking instead about 
having social workers in the department. Um, you've talked about closing down the workhouse, uh, and some have, I mean, there's been some controversy over that. Yes. Do you want to talk about those those things, why you were proposing their approaches that you're taking and how you think that would help the city? Well, the approach about social workers in the police department um, we got from other cities. Uh, Los Angeles and Miami currently have social workers in their police department, and uh, it has seen, and and they've increased their satisfaction amongst uh, citizens with the police department and treated people more humane. And police handle a whole host of things that they're not equipped to handle. And I think having social workers helps police as well. and when I talk about, I, mean, I, I think we have enough cops um, or police, I, I, and I just uh, I don't think they're being uh, deployed effectively. And then another thing I'd like to do is morale is at an all-time low, and I think that their voices aren't being heard in this entire process. Um, when I took over the treasurer's office, uh, morale was at an all-time low with my employees, and so we uh, hired some consultants and you know, really went and talked to people about what they wanted to see out of the office going forward. I think police and firefighters would appreciate uh, having a voice um, in, in how their department moves forward uh, in the next administration. Playing a little bit of devil's advocate here, though, could you make the argument or police could make the argument that morale is so low because they're overworked, they don't have the resources that they need, they need to put more officers on the street to avoid the mandatory overtime and to, you know, they they feel like they need additional staffing. If they came to you and said that is what would improve morale, does that change your stance on the need for more officers? Absolutely. If that's if that's what um, what what they say and then also. I think that we we need um, some. I, I think we would benefit from having a public safety director who has experience in decreasing urban crime in cities of our size, um, and uh, and then also uh, replacing the police chief. I think that leadership is is also. Um, a big, a big portion of why the morale is low. I, I guess you just, just stole your question. You just stole, stole your question. question. So you don't, uh-uh. you don't think Sam Dotson should remain as police chief? No. Can I you do explain not. why? Um, because um, I think a lot of the things that um, I just think it's time for new leadership. I'll just say that it's time for new leadership, and everything has to be on the table. Now, are there any, are there any people who are in the police department or from somewhere else? Who, who you sort of have an eye on as possible, either replacements for as chief or as public safety director? No, I do not. I'd, I'd like to do a nationwide search. Okay. Now, I did want to ask you about the workhouse because I know there's been some talk about that. Mm-hmm. I've had uh, actually, um, I had, I've had some officials tell me that one of the things that they weren't sure you were aware of is the fact that the city gets money from a lot of people who are put there because they're there temporarily for federal offenses or other um, crimes so the city gets money for housing them so they say the city would lose money aside from the other issue of where Mm -hmm. do you put the people so I mean do you want to talk about that your whole philosophy about the workhouse so at any point in time when you look at who's at the workhouse they're there because they are poor sick minority or are on drugs so I'm talking about making sure that we have humane treatment and, and proper treatment for the right reasons. So if someone is has a mental illness or is on drugs, they don't need to be at the workhouse. They need to be in treatment. Uh, third of all, 
we need to eliminate cash bail because people are there because they can't afford cash bail. And we've seen time and time again how, well, more recently with a young woman who took her life while waiting for cash, you know, waiting for her trial because she couldn't afford cash bail. Uh, So I'm talking about treating people who... uh, more humanely uh, within our criminal justice system. Um, and when we built the, the new jail downtown, it was so we could close the workhouse, and that never happened. So let's take a look and triage all of our current population um, and those who don't need to be there, find them the resources that they, that they need, um, and then I still think we can close the workhouse and, and, and use uh, the city jail because it is inhabitable. No one should be there. So I want to ask about police community relations. That's kind of yeah. the euphemism that I just used to talk about the relationships between police officers and the African-American community. One of the mm-hmm. things I've noticed living in St. Louis for seven years, I live in Southwest St. Louis. I love living there, but it's also 99% white. It's middle to upper middle class. Mm-hmm. And the relationship between the populace there is a lot different than even a place like Shaw, which is more diverse, or mm-hmm. places in North City or South City where it's predominantly African-American. I think it's incumbent on whoever wins this mayoral office, since they're going to be in charge of the police department, to be a leader in forging better relationships between police and African-Americans. So I would like you to talk a little bit about how you're going to do that, because I see that as a huge challenge going Mm -hmm. forward. And it was a challenge even before Michael Brown was shot and killed. Right, right. Um, this didn't, right. This didn't just happen as of August 9th, 2014. This has been um, bubbling under the surface for years. And, um, and I think, um, again, we need to uh, make sure that our police have the proper training uh, and, then we, and really focus on community and police relations. You know, that's, that's more than just, you know, police playing basketball, you know, with the kids one day. Uh, you know, we need to make sure that they are infused in our normal communities um, and interacting with people on a, on a day-to-day basis because, you know, there are people, tons of people who have uh, memories of the cop that lives on their street who interacted with all the kids. My Actually, my neighbor is, is a police officer, and I never see him because he's working 18, 20-hour days. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny, the other night my son and I were coming home and he saw this, his car in the driveway and he says, Mom, our neighbor's home. I can't believe it. And um, so I, I think we need to, you know, to, to, again, look at other cities where community police relations have, uh, have gotten better between police and the African-American community, see what they're doing right, bring those programs to St. Louis and tweak them for our environment and let them roll. Does that mean, is, are you thinking that perhaps the residency requirement needs to be changed, remove the seven-year out that police and firefighters have? Um, I, I think they already, that, remo- that was removed when they, no, that, got, that came back after mm-hmm. they, became civil servants again, right? So right, now it's right. a residency requirement. I, but that I think the residency requirement is a larger question on um, on on whether or not we uh, on on our whole uh, HR workforce um, issue altogether because we have a lot of positions that go unfilled in the city because of the residency requirement. Yeah, and, and I, I don't know exactly how it works here, but I know, for example, in the city of Chicago, where I have relatives, a lot of people who have a residency requirement live close to the border somewhere, either mm-hmm. on the north side or the south side. I'm pretty sure that occurred here, too. A lot of police and firefighters live in my neck of the woods in South St. Louis. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I th- just because there's a residency requirement doesn't necessarily mean they live all over the city. Right, exactly, exactly.
So um, I want to talk about city-county merger. Mm-hmm. This is a topic where I think uh, a mayor or county executive have moral authority. They can work behind the scenes. But in, in essence, it's kind of up to the voters to decide. Mm-hmm. I'd like to know your general philosophy on that question uh, first. I think we need to get our house in order, and and I think St. Louis County needs to also get its house in order before we think about merging. Um, when I uh, talk about us, I mean, um, our we have a twenty million dollar looming budget shortfall. We also have a two hundred fifty two million dollar uh, looming pension shortfall for our uh, or pen, our pension is underfunded for city employees. Um, we need to you know get our house in order in terms of crime and unemployment and a whole host of things. I think before we uh, open our doors and let someone in. Um, and when I talk about the county, I think you know uh, some consolidation should be in order. We have municipalities that are as small as 13 people. Um, and uh, and then also um, we also need to look at um, other city, other metro areas that have already been through this, and I don't think we have uh, to see you know what were some of the um, what were some of the arguments for the arguments against, and, and, and what were some of the compromises made so everybody felt like they are whole? Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest thing about this right now is fear of the unknown and what's what it's going to look like. And unless you're having that conversation of you know the possibilities of what it could look like, we're still going to be in the same place you know four years hence. Now, why do you think that this is this has been something that's been discussed for decades, and initially? Uh, the county voters were totally against it. Uh, There's been some changes Mm -hmm. in some of the proposals. Some would just have the city re-enter the county as another municipality. Mm -hmm. Um, If you were trying to promote that to county voters on why it's in their interest, what would you say? Um, I don't know right now because I don't know what it looks like. You know what I mean? And and the only... The only model we have thus far is the county reentering, the city reentering the county as another municipality. Mm-hmm. I think there are other models that we can look like that that totally realign our government. I think this this is also an opportunity to do that, mm-hmm. um, and not just become the 92nd municipality. Well, one of the things that I've I've heard kind of through the peripheral is, and if any proposals put forward, that someone like Rex Singfeld would put it toward a statewide ballot because it might be easier to pass as opposed to putting it to the city and county voters. If that occurs, and that's what happened with local control, by the way, mm-hmm. what, would the be, police department. what would right. be your posture as mayor if that happened? Would you, would you oppose that type of strategy or would you possibly support it if you like the proposal essentially? I would say it depends. It depends on what is because the devil's in the details. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this, and well, I won't say what I was going to say about Rex. Um, uh, and the, and, and and I think what happened with local control of the police department, there were certain details that we didn't know were there until after we got it, and then now our hands are tied, so to speak. Um, so, you, you, do you want to give some examples so our listeners yeah, um, understand what you're talking about? Well, number one, the, the, how the uh, our current chief became chief from the rank of captain um, was instead of lieutenant colonel, which is how how the process usually goes, um, and I, I think that led to the morale shift uh, in the department. But he for also a lot became chief before local control. He was appointed by the the Board of Police Commissioners. So are you saying that the inability to get a new chief on board after local control or are there other things that you're thinking of? Uh, there, there, I, that was that was my main 
one of one of the main things. Um, then also uh, how they're seen as civil servant or their their interaction with the civil service commission um, uh, is another uh, point of contention for the current members of the civil service commission, um, and and that they don't have the same sort of uh, procedures that any other civil servant has um, because they sort of police themselves um, when it comes to HR issues. Um, but back to putting this on the ballot, um, again, you know, it, it would all depend on what's yeah. in the bill. Um, the, the reason I'm asking that question is, as a St. Louis City resident, I understand the reason you would take it statewide because you, it's easier to pass. But I, I would also be very uncomfortable with, like, Nottoway County right. and Saline County deciding this issue. Right. Don't want somebody in Nixa deciding if we should merge. Yeah. <laughs> but some people may think that's an easier strategy, hence the reason yeah. I'm asking the question. Yeah, although it's unclear. I'm, I'm, I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but I'm, I, I'm not sure that Sinkfield, who's a major donor for, for politicians, primarily Republicans, but some Democrats in the region and in the state— uh, is going to get involved in this right now, but in but mm -hmm. in but in but in any case, as you're looking at the landscape, are there other key issues before we get into some of the nitty gritties about the campaign, and and some of the dynamics? Um, are there other major issues that you think that aren't being discussed? I mean, I did a story a couple of weeks ago where they were talking about uh, many of the veterans were saying you guys aren't talking enough about the city's financial problems. Uh, how I do, talk how, about the city's financial problems. Mean, how, well, <laughs> how do you see some of this? And and how would you address some of the city's financial problems? Because I've been told there's a looming $20 million hole there is. for whoever there is. becomes the next mayor. Said it publicly. Um, uh, well, number one, we haven't taken a look at all of our revenue streams in years. Um, and when I got into the treasurer's office, we looked at the uh, ordinances that control the treasurer's office, um, and they hadn't been updated since the 60s. Um, so I think we need to take a hard look at all of our revenue streams and, and again, uh, look around the country to see where how cities who have had looming budget shortfalls have attacked this um, to find different revenue streams um, and, and, and try to see what we can do to replicate some of those models. Um, I don't have any idea what they would be, but I just know that our revenue, our current revenue streams haven't been updated in decades. Um, and so until we and, and then also our credit uh, rating keeps getting downgraded because of that, because um, because we give out so much money in tax incentives and tax abatements um, because our poverty rate um, has is double the national average because um, we have a, a large amount of our property are controlled by nonprofit, uh, large nonprofit organizations. So we have to take a look at where all our revenue is coming from and where it isn't coming from and start, and start having those serious conversations. Now, before we delve into politics, I do want to talk about education because although the mayor does not have direct control over the Board of Education, I think that they still play an incredibly important role as in the bully pulpit. And, and some direct things, like appointing a member to the S, uh, SAB. SAB. Mm -hmm. So what's going to be your philosophy toward education? Because I know that the current mayor has been big on touting an increase in charter schools. Mm -hmm. That's an issue that you were heavily involved mm -hmm. in in the legislature. Mm -hmm. um, but you're also talking about keeping the momentum going for St. Louis public schools. Mm -hmm. Just my first question on that, what would be your general philosophy toward education if you're mayor? Uh, you're right. Even though the mayor doesn't have any direct authority over the schools, any of our schools, it doesn't mean that the city can't be a better partner. Uh, and that means working with principals and 
school leaders, um, no matter where our children are going to school, to see what we can do to remove barriers to education for our children. And as we saw in Jennings, it was as simple as putting in a washer and dryer in a school so parents can have access to wash their clothes so their babies can have clean clothes to go to school you know, every day. So what are the barriers and what can we do to find the resources for those barriers? And, and, and what can we do to to do whatever we can to help help our children. And I want to be clear here. I've asked this to every candidate, so I'm not just picking on you. Where, do, where does Aiden go to school? Does he go private, public, charter school? Aiden's in the Clayton District. We're in the transfer program. Okay. Yeah. So the reason I asked that question, I think one of the biggest challenges going forward is keeping the momentum of the St. Louis Public Schools going. It yes. just regained accreditation. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things that also needs to be said is a lot of people like me who are white, middle class, upper middle class, we, we tend to send our kids to private schools or charter schools or I don't know if we send them to parochial. the county. Parochial, parochial schools. schools. Mm-hmm. And there, there's that choice there. And some people do it for, for various reasons. Some people like Catholic education. Some people right. um, don't have any good options elsewhere. What do you think it's going to take to get more people to buy into the St. Louis public school systems, including people that don't currently send their schools there? Um, you know, people in my neck of the woods. Um, it, it's going to take the mayor, um, along with the superintendent and school board, using their bully pulpit to to really tout the successes of the school district, um, which we're starting to see happen uh, with the billboards that are going up, with the commercials we hear on the radio. Um, but it's, it's really going to take, um, you know, making sure that everybody knows that, you know, our schools are fully accredited, you know, and 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 letting people know, you know, the school around the corner from your house or whatever, it's fully accredited. It's great school. This these are the these are the metrics those kids are getting. So I think once they start to tell their story more and use that option, you know, I think people will start to come back to the school. Would there ever be a moment where you could see bringing your son back into the St. Louis public schools? And what, what, what would it take for you to have Aiden go to his neighborhood school? So Aiden's neighborhood school is uh, KIPP. Uh, Victory Academy. That's the. It's actually right around the corner from us. And Kip is a great program, but right now he's in the third grade. And I think they only go up to second. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's you know not an option for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and Soldane International is around the corner as a high school, um, and they 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 have great programs there. So you know that is an option, um, but also you know, picking up a kid and taking him away from his friends just because mommy wants to be socially responsible. Yeah. I don't know if you forgive it, me for that. And I, I want to make it clear, this is not an easy decision for people. I know no. we've had a, we had another mayoral candidate, Antonio French, mentioned the fact that his son goes to school in South St. Louis because the public school around his neck of the woods for him isn't good enough. It's apparently low performing. So I don't, I don't have, I, I don't, be, as as a parent myself, it's not a de- binary decision. Right. And even though I think we all want to send our kids to public schools, mm-hmm. um, sometimes it's not an option for people. But I think right. that the momentum seems to be going in the right direction. I think what also has to happen is, you know, um, so North St. Louis, for example, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, people in North St. Louis feel abandoned and a lot of families have left North St. Louis. And until we have more families uh, more middle-class families in North St. Louis and, and more, you know, families, period, uh, then the schools will start to get better. So, you know, it's it's a, you know, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. The schools are bad because they, they you know, they're, they've neglected the families that are up there. So until we start paying attention to the families that are in those neighborhoods, we're going to continue to see this problem. 
Now, I like to shift yes. a bit into the campaign. Okay, whether or not it's it's correct, it's a fact that uh, racial politics have been a long long-standing influence in mm-hmm. St. Louis statewide, I mean citywide elections. Mm-hmm. And so in the case of the Democratic primary, the, there has been a lot of quote conventional wisdom that um, because the five major candidates, the five major Democratic candidates, four African-American and one is white, mm-hmm. that that in and of itself, forgetting views on issues, forgetting anything, right. um, gives the white candidate an edge, in part because um, Missouri also has open primaries, so you have Republicans or others who may take a Democratic ballot in March. Mm-hmm. How do you sort of see the whole racial dynamics in this contest, and how has that affected how you campaign? Um, so I am aware of racial dynamics in the campaign. However, we are uh, camp- we are uh, campaigning with everyone, um, and um, our message of one St. Louis means you know everyone is included, no matter you're white, black, Latino. Uh, Asian, American, whatever. And we have done outreach to those communities as well. Um, I did a a meet and greet, a Hispanic meet and greet with some of my um, Hispanic elected officials uh, who are elected officials around the country who came into Canvas for me last weekend. Um, And the thing I kept hearing over and over again is no one's doing any outreach to to the Latino or Hispanic community. Um, The other thing is, uh, I think voters are smarter than that. You know, our, our voting demographic is not monolithic anymore, as we saw in uh, Vernon Betts's race as well as Kim Gardner's race. And Vernon Betts more more so than anybody else because um, there were three African Americans and one white in mm-hmm. that race. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. and and he won um, with what forty percent of the it, vote. It was a pretty sizable victory. Very sizable victory. Yeah. Um, so I think. Uh, people in general, St. Louis's in general, want to see a uh, progressive candidate who's going to uh, stand up for their beliefs um, and someone that they can trust. Now, I'm going to try it a little bit carefully here because it's my policy not to criticize other media outlets. But you have been critical of the media coverage of your campaign. You recently wrote a letter basically explaining that that has gone pseudo viral. I, I want to get pseudo viral. I, I, no, I think it's LeVar Burton jumping in. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Howard Dean. Howard Dean. <laughs> I, I want to just ask you, A, to explain why you've done that, and B, if you think it's an effective strategy, because I, I'm not trying to compare it to Trump or anything, because you're here right now, you're talking to a bunch of media people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I could also see people saying the attack the media strategy may not be effective. So mm-hmm. can you just kind of explain your philosophy on that? So, um, And I don't think it was attacking the media in general, but attacking the Mm -hmm. Post-Dispatch. Because I have always respected St. Louis Public Radio. I think you guys are very objective uh, and very fair when it Mm -hmm. comes to reporting, and you report all sides of the story. Mm -hmm. Um, And I particularly looked at the coverage of the mayoral race, and there was much more coverage on my candidacy and my mistakes in the past and and my so-called business dealings um, than any other candidate. And that it started happening in, in mid-December, and it was every two weeks. It was something new, something new, something new, and they hadn't reported on any other candidate. And they were, whether or not they knew it or could realize that or not, they were shaping up to, uh, I knew that they weren't going to endorse me. I knew that going in. So 
And then last, this, I think the straw that broke the camel's back was the editorial piece about bringing down the high-flying treasure, and they need to bring her down to earth, which was laced with overt racism, in my opinion. And so um, I decided that uh, it was time to tell the truth. And I did so uh, through a letter to the editorial board when I declined their interview. Um, and I never expected that letter to go viral. Um, I just wanted to make sure that I was telling the truth and, and, and standing up and being the person who my parents raised me to be. Why do you think it has captured so much attention? I mean, your, your, your words, without getting into the, the specific outlet, but just there's been people who've commented from all over, <laughs> just in general. Is there a particular reason why you think it's captured the interest and attention? Um, I, I think the way that I started the letter, which was responding to um, the head of the editorial board's reasons for saying that the region was um, uh, the region was uh, dying because of blight and graffiti, and we know that those aren't the reasons why our region is dying. Or, or blight and graffiti are killing our region. We know that that's not the reason. We know we know what what we need to do to solve our problems. And it, and and blight, yes, is part of it, but that it's a it's a larger issue. Well, it's not like poverty is just a newfound revelation in St. Louis. I mean, my grandfather lived north of Del Mar, and he joked before he died he was so poor that he couldn't afford a middle name. And this has been an issue in urban places, but especially St. Louis, even when the population was much larger. Mm -hmm. And frankly, in 2013, when uh, Mayor Slay was running for re-election, I don't think we heard a lot about, you know, blight, poverty, crime as, as major issues. I think that the emphasis was, you know, the startup communities getting better and, you know, all these young people are moving in. And, and granted, this was four years ago. My memory's a little fuzzy, mm. but it, it is interesting to me that, now crime is a major issue and now blight is a major issue when they've been long-standing problems for decades mm -hmm. essentially i think a lot of that also has to do with um crime had gotten lower at that point yes. so it wasn't as much of an issue they were homi uh, homicides were down crime overall mm -hmm. was down so if you you can't sling that mud at your opponent if there's nothing to really sling mud about. So mm -hmm. you also have an incumbent who's a little bit more able to set the, the tone of the campaign, I think. But what do you think about that? Because it does seem like that those issues that I mentioned have emphasis now, but maybe didn't have it in past campaigns. I mean, it's not like people weren't living that reality. Mm -hmm. So what, why do you think that happened? Well, in 2012, I focused on poverty mm -hmm. as a part of the treasurer's election when I talked about the unbanked and the underbanked mm -hmm. and, and how they spend more money getting access to their paychecks than normal people do that, that have access to, uh, say, financial services. So, you know, poverty has always been something that I have focused on as treasurer. So um, I was talking about it in 2012, even though they didn't talk about it in the 2013 mayor's race. So um, I was always aware of where uh, poverty, education, um, homelessness, all these things are linked, and crime and, and crime and public safety are all linked, um, and have, and have uh, structured my platform to address that. Now, one of the things that's come up just lately is the issue of endorsements. While I personally don't think they have the power they used to have, they still do capture some attention. Mm -hmm. Of course, Mayor Slay has endorsed one of your opponents. Mm -hmm. But... Um, the county assessor, Jake Zimmerman, mm -hmm. recently came out for you. Mm -hmm. And the uh, former, former Democratic, yeah, the former Secretary of State, who was the former Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate, Jason Kander, also recently came out for you. Mm -hmm. uh, 
what role do you think endorsements have in this contest and how are you using the ones that you got to make your case? Um, I think uh, endorsements also, um, if you have enough of them sometimes, because uh, I didn't have these, some of these same endorsements in the treasurer's race, um, uh, lead people to believe that there is some consensus building around a certain candidate. Um, and we also have uh, several committee people and alder people um, also supporting this race um, and, uh, more than, than our opponents. Um, and, uh, and we're using uh, all of those people strategically to try to make sure that we're getting out the vote in those wards. Well, we want to just thank you for coming in. We've got 48 minutes and 37 seconds of great conversation. Yes. And uh, I'm very happy we were able to get all seven candidates on. We want, As I said on the outset, we want to make sure that the St. Louis voters get as much information about the people that are going to be the mayor. This yeah. is vitally important. Yes. And for those who haven't heard some of the previous ones, you can go to our website, click on where it says Politically Speaking under, under Programs, and there's a list of all of the podcasts, and these are all prominently marked. We'll also be uh, building a, a page, a one-stop shop, if you will, as we approach a little bit closer to the primary, which is closer than I think any of us want to admit at this 20 point. 20 days. 20 days. <laughs> For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. Follow Rachel on Twitter at... At R. Lipman, two P's, two N's. How can we... How can people follow your campaign on the World Wide Web? At Tashara, the number four mayor dot or well dot com and also uh, at Tashara for mayor on Twitter. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. Come on in, just take a seat. We're going to find y'all something real good to eat. I'm Allie. Ready? And I'll be right back with your drinks. Can I take your order? Cola with that extra lime Would you like change back or can I keep this dime?